0: This is Upstate's HealthLink air. Linda Cohen here with you. The intersection of law and medicine is often contentious territory, especially when it involves medical malpractice. But equally important are those cases that arise concerning medical ethics when patients are being cared for within a hospital or a like institution. Here to help us understand how these very thorny and sometimes murky cases are deliberated and resolved are Dr. Thomas Curran, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and of Bioethics and Humanities at Upstate medical Medical University, and Robert Olick, an attorney and associate professor of bioethics and humanities. He's also chair of the ethics committee at Upstate Medical University, and both of my guests serve as ethics consultants. Mm. Thank you so much for coming in. Appreciate okay. it. So both of you um, serve as, as I said, you have an important role at Upstate University Hospital. Um, let me start with you, Dr. Kerr, and explain what that role is exactly. As a consultant. So what is it to be a consultant, an ethics consultant? An ethics
1: consultant is a service that the, the university hospital offers. We are available seven days a week from 8 to 5, and anyone, it's a, one of the few consults that anyone can call in. So family member, staff member, physician, nurse, it's uh, open to uh, anyone who, wants to discuss what they feel to be an ethical dilemma with their, their care or their care of a loved one.
0: So you and, and Mr. Olick basically serve in that capacity. So either one of you could be called, for example, in one of those circumstances.
2: Is that uh, right? Yeah, that's Mr. correct. We have a consult service that um, currently has uh, three faculty members um, and at other times have had a greater number. So we rotate taking call uh, according to the schedule that was just um, articulated Um, And uh, we're available to anybody to get involved and try to help resolve disagreements, identify issues, clarify misunderstandings. Um, But it's also important for people to know that we don't make decisions. Um, We give advice, um, but we don't make decisions. The uh, authority uh, and the right and the responsibility – Uh, to make decisions, uh, continues to rest within the confines of the doctor, patient, and family relationship.
0: That's very interesting. I've also alluded in the the introduction that there is an ethics committee. How is that the same or different from your role as a consultant?
2: Well, it's different. Once upon a time, they had overlapping functions. So when ethics committees first emerged, and you could date that to the late 1970s into the 1980s, Ethics committees serve three sorts of functions uh, policy review, uh, education, and consultation. But over time, one of the reasons that consultation has been taken out of the role of many ethics committees and is not part of our function uh, is that from a purely practical standpoint, um, it's challenging to get a committee together to deliberate on a, an ethical and, and challenging issue. Um, usually, on short the, usually there's
0: time it's time sensitive it's thing. time
2: sensitive and so having one person um, available to do that to respond uh, it makes a lot more sense uh, and it, it, we also work sort of as a team so one of us may be the primary consultant, but we work with each other uh, and we have uh, monthly meetings to review the cases and and uh, see how things went
0: and now you're a physician Dr. Curran and you're an attorney Mr. Olick what do, how do your backgrounds, I mean, what does it take to become an ethics consultant? I mean, what What in your backgrounds facilitates that?
1: Well, for, speaking for myself, I, I, my job as a physician, I'm in intensive care of the newborn, and that area of medicine is fraught with many difficult ethical dilemmas, particularly with the extremely premature infants. And I became interested in how do we make decisions in in this ethical gray zone, and I followed up that interest by volunteering to be an ethics consultant at Kraus, back in 1992, and that was was the school of the seat of my pants, uh, just experience. And then uh, I was uh, joined up with the the university, and and uh, Dr. Faber Faber-Lagendun is the chairman of that or or the head of our ethics consulting service, Uh, and. Once again, it's, it's, uh, there is no set pathway for how you become an ethics consultant other than being interested and uh, being open to peer review, in our case,
2: on a monthly basis. I'm done right. so, so it's an important question that's being uh, debated and worked on in the bioethics field. Um, there are currently no standards, no specific um, qualifications or standards for how one becomes an ethics consultant or what sort of training or experience one ought to have. Um, there are some guidelines that have been developed, uh, for example, by the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities, um, but they're in no way binding guidelines, uh, and they don't establish a path necessarily to becoming an ethics consultant. So it is, as, as Dr. Kern was just describing, a combination of uh, interest, um, self-education and training, um, and ethics consultants come from different relevant backgrounds. So doctors, lawyers, um, social work, uh, nursing, um, uh, those trained in philosophy, um, all relevant disciplines um, to bring to bear um, as consultants.
0: Had there been a series of, for want of a better term, best practices that have been established as part of this? In other words, your methodology and your approach, is there—is there a <laughs> way that um, you come at these kinds of dilemmas, these kinds of conflicts that one could you know could talk about principles of approach
1: mm-hmm. well I, I mean I, as I say I think our our peer review our monthly peer review is really the, the, the way that we for example, um, it's not unusual for us to talk to each other to kind of mine the individual members' areas of expertise. And if Rob has a, a question about what a certain medical situation means, he'll just call me and say, what do you think is going on? How bad is this? And if I have a, a legal question, I'll call him. And We're we, 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 we the super friends. We use each other's strengths to try and uh, deliver the most well-reasoned um, advice that we can.
0: And as you mentioned, I think, um, Mr. Ollick, that was very clear, you know, it was surprising to me in a way, is that no decision is offered, no pronouncement is made, but rather, what, an advice?
2: Um, Advice or recommendation. So, for example, um, the vast majority of consults, we will, uh, at some point during the consult, whether during its course or when it's concluded, um, write a note in the chart. And that note typically uh, gives an explanation of what we identified as the issues, what we did, and what our recommendation would be. Now, the recommendation is not binding, but it's there. It's been expressed verbally, of course, but also it's in the chart, in the note. Uh, for others to see as uh, time goes forward, uh, caring for the patient.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohn, along with bioethicists, Dr. Thomas Kern and and Robert Olick, and we're talking about the ethics of medical cases and issues that arise during hospitalizations. Um, so it's non binding, but generally do the physicians who consult you take your advice? Is that what your experience has been?
1: Uh, it, absolutely. I, I, I just want to add that, the, the, from taking it from a historical perspective, you know, even as recently as the '80s, the patients basically did what the doctors said, and it was a very paternalistic model. And as we flash forward to 2016, patient autonomy has really risen uh, to the forefront of what's important in making decisions. And so patients don't necess- patients don't have to do. What the doctors say, and it's not setting up an oppositional relationship, but rather just noting the shift from paternalism to patient autonomy. And with patient, with the rising patient autonomy, that's really created space for ethics consultants to operate in, because now we have two different parties trying to figure out what is the most appropriate way or reasonable way to proceed in a in, a, in, a, uh, in the gray zone.
0: And it seems to me that a lot of what your work uh, addresses is sometimes this notion of mediating in some way between family disagreements of some kind around the care of a patient. And, um, you know, especially when they're involved in the surrogate decision-making of some kind um, with this whole idea of healthcare proxy and all of that, especially when someone, their loved one has lost their uh, decisional capacity. So let's talk very briefly about a case and how you've approached it. Let's take a sample case and I think that'll help illuminate the kind of work you do.
1: Okay, so the, the, of course these are, these are cases that have been de-identified, but they, are, they're, they, have, they have a basis in uh, cases that we've worked on in the past here at Upstate and Krause. So we're, we're asked to see an 85 year old man who had a complex past medical history and he had been admitted to the hospital with an acute heart attack as well as renal failure. And he had undergone a trial of dialysis, but it was unsuccessful, and his kidneys were not going to come back. He was going to, um, uh, they were going to remain in failure. And his two sons were insistent on continuing aggressive treatment. However, his pastor uh, had had previous conversations with the patient before he was admitted, and the pastor knew that he would not want to continue medical interventions in the situation. And in addition to that, the pastor had uh, mentioned that there was a living will floating around somewhere, and we were then consulted.
0: So what happened?
2: Well, um, the questions that that I would ask in such a case would be, first and foremost, I'd start with the question, as an organizing principle, who decides? Who has authority and right to make this decision? So we're told that the patient, or it's implied in the description and the account from the provider, that the patient lacks capacity but we don't know that for sure Um, it's something that uh, we don't assess as ethics consultants it's something a doctor has to assess but also has to document so one question would be does the patient lack capacity um, and has that been documented once you determine that uh, then you have to see who the alternative decision maker or surrogate decision maker would be Um, so we have a a couple possibilities here one is you have the two sons um, and in the absence of a healthcare proxy appointment, they would have a co-equal authority to make that decision. Um, there is reference to a possible living will, and so we want to track that down, see if there is a living will, see if it is a traditional living will that sets forth the patient's wishes, or if it also serves as a healthcare proxy, which might tell us. Uh, more clearly, who has uh, authority to decide. Um, and tracking down that living will um, is often a function of social work, uh, working with the family. Um, so, you know, they're important partners with mm-hmm. us True. in the ethics consultation process. And then, uh, secondarily to that, equally important, but secondarily, it's not just about who decides, but what the decision will be. And it's often the question of what the decision will be that is the source of disagreement. Uh, among the people involved.
0: So bottom line is you lay out what needs to be determined to move forward, but then what happens? Assuming a living will can't be found?
1: Well, it's, so this is the um, it's so important to have um, a family meeting where you have all the players in the room at the same time, so that the physicians can lay out what they think is likely to to happen in this situation. And this, in this case, the physicians felt this man was never going to recover, and he was going to—he was going to pass away. It was just a matter of how. And understand why the sons, what is their motivation or rationale for continuing aggressive treatment? We try and switch the subject from what do you want to do, to what do you think your father would want in this situation? Kind of have the, give them the opportunity to reset their thinking.
0: So how did it end up?
1: Well, in this case, as it turned out, the living will did in fact exist. It did suggest that this uh, gentleman would not want aggressive treatment. And in the context of a family meeting between the, the discussion with the physicians and the living will, the, t- the decision was made to transition to comfort care, which seemed to be, as Rob has talked about, honoring what the patient's wishes were.
0: So what's the underlying bottom line point here?
2: So an important message that comes out of this case is the value of putting your wishes in writing, which this patient did, um, making that document available to others, which was a question here, and appointing someone as your healthcare proxy to make decisions for you and follow those wishes. So in this case, um, you would have chosen perhaps one of your sons, and it would have been clear who made the decision and what the basis for that decision would be to honor your own wishes.
0: Very important information. I'm going to ask you guys to consider coming back another time so we can talk more about these kinds of cases because I think there's a lot here to discuss Thank you so very much. My guests have been Dr. Thomas Kern, a physician assistant professor of bioethics and humanities, and Robert Olick, a lawyer and associate professor of bioethics and humanities at Upstate University Hospital. I'm Linda Cohen and you're listening to HealthLink on Air.